0: We're not algae, we're not a rock, we're, we're not um, stasis. If we truly want to accomplish something, if we want life to not only be interesting but also rewarding, I think it's absolutely vital that you seek continuous improvement. You should have a perpetual dissatisfaction with your level of competence at everything that you do.
1: Welcome to episode 11 of our CI for Life podcast. I'm Rick Hyland with RLG International. This is a podcast for those individuals passionate about personal and professional continuous improvement. Our purpose today is to provide future C-suite leaders the mindset, skill set, and tool set to become leaders of continuous performance improvement. Today's very special guest is retired astronaut Chris Hadfield. Chris, welcome to the podcast.
0: Rick, it is a delight to be speaking with you. Thanks very much for the invitation.
1: Well, I know this is uh, probably your third or fourth today, but I really appreciate you make time for our podcast. And, and you and I met briefly in 2003 when you came out in, to Banff, Alberta, and presented at our annual Best of the Best event, and it's been so exciting to follow your career. Let me just, for our business listeners, uh, mention a little bit of your background, and then if I miss anything, you can uh, add or elaborate. But Chris is a fighter pilot, test pilot, astronaut, internet sensation, author, and I guess now retired astronaut. And uh, Chris is referred to as the most famous astronaut since Neil Armstrong. Colonel Chris Hadfield is a worldwide sensation whose video of David Bowie's space oddity was seen by over 75 million people online. (laughs) Very exciting. In 1992, Colonel Hadfield was selected as a NASA mission specialist. And three years later, he was aboard the shuttle Atlantis, where he helped build the mirror Space Station, and in 2001 on the Shuttle Endeavour, Colonel Hadfield performed two spacewalks on that. And then in 2013, he became commander of the International Space Station for basically six months off-planet. The other, we love data, right, Chris? The other data that I saw there is that you traveled 100 million kilometers on that particular uh, six months and completed over 2,300 orbits of the Earth, which is uh, mind-boggling to say the least. Um, Chris is a heavily decorated astronaut, engineer, and pilot. Colonel Hatfield's many awards include the Order of Canada, Meritus Service Cross, and NASA Exceptional Service Medal. He was named the top test pilot in both the U.S. Armed Forces and the U.S. Navy and was inducted into the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame. Many more things I could go into. Chris, you can uh, elaborate or anything that I missed that you think is relevant, but also maybe the listeners want to know, what are you up to today as a retired astronaut?
0: <laughs> Doing a lot of different things, Rick. Uh, yeah, I, I've uh, been married to the same woman uh, since uh, I was 20 years old, so most of my life. And um, we have three children and a granddaughter. Uh, in addition to those things, I've done in space, I was also NASA's director of operations in Russia and the chief capcom for NASA and chief of space station operations. So I've done a bunch of things on the ground. I retired as an astronaut five and a half years ago. Since then. Uh, I've done a lot of different things. I speak all over the world. I've uh, written three books, as you mentioned. I um, hosted a series on National Geographic called One Strange Rock that a lot of people are watching. hosted a BBC series, currently filming a series in the United Arab Emirates about astronaut selection. I uh, did a master class that a lot of people have watched online. Uh, I teach at University, University of Waterloo. I play a lot of music. In fact, you mentioned Space Oddity. Uh, I recently toured with David Bowie's band. A lot of fun. Some great, great uh, musicians, people that that love David and that David loved. So it's almost like an echo of who the man was. So that's been a real treat. And I write a lot of music and play with symphonies um, all over the world. And I guess I'm in the process of writing my fourth book. I run a technology incubator called Creative Destruction Lab um, that uh, that is helping to bring space technologies to the fore. And I'm the chair of the board of a a space startup that's looking at very inexpensively putting things on the moon and and how it is that we want to become an interplanetary species, uh, sort of a deliberate action there. So lots of different projects um, and and all of them, interestingly enough, absolutely directly tied to a a lifelong imperative of continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. To me, that's that's the only way to go through life. We're not algae. We're not a rock. We're, we're not, um, you know, stasis. If we truly want to accomplish something, if we want life to not only be interesting but also rewarding, I think it's absolutely vital that, that you seek continuous improvement. You should have a perpetual dissatisfaction with your level of competence at everything that you do. And, and without that, um, uh, you know, I, I think... The, the passivity that might set in would, would sort of put a pointlessness in life that I'm not willing to have. So so I'm happy to be talking to you about uh, continuous improvement, whether it's personal or professional.
1: Well, thank you. That's uh, very kind of you to spend time with us because I know you're busy, as you've just highlighted. And it was when I was rereading your book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life, that the epiphany came to me that this is your life and your career there is all about continuous improvement. And I think there's so many lessons for business professionals today, and as you know, we consult heavily into resource-based industries, big manufacturing sites, and and I, I just uh, wanted to hear you translate some of those lessons for us from space and your career into uh, some insights into both personal and professional uh, continuous improvement. If you don't mind, Chris, I if I could start with the personal side because I people I think people always want to know kind of what the driving motivations and insights from people and. In my second episode, I spent time on uh, the importance of purpose and mission statements. And uh, so I was rereading your book. You, you talk about that as a nine-year-old, I think it was. You watched the first man on the moon and, and were inspired by that. And basically, that became your your driving focus. Maybe elaborate on that part of the story and then how that purpose drove your future decision-making or when things got really tough, how that you went back to that purpose and how that helped with motivation and clarity.
0: Yeah, I think on the personal side, uh, actually in my life, there's been, uh, not a lot of difference to my personal and professional lives. And I think it's because the two of them are very tightly tied in with, uh, with goals and, and with the things that, that I try and choose to do each day. And, uh, uh, I, have, I have lots of different goals and interests and things I would like to accomplish. Uh, I, I have a very clear one, and, and that, was, uh, that is to walk on the moon. I, I would love to walk on the moon. It's a goal I don't think I'm ever going to be able to achieve, but I think that's okay. And that, that's a really important lesson, I think, uh, that I learned a long time ago, is that the, the, the simple act of choosing a goal in life, of having something that seems unattainable, but, but that if you put it up in the wall uh, in the distance, it gives you um, a focus to what to choose to do next. And, and it works on a lifelong schedule, say walking on the moon or, or I, I don't know, uh, performing the first brain, brain transplant or what, whatever it is that you think is right on the edge of impossible for you as a human being. But to have that, uh, for your overall life. It also works on the daily level. What do I what is my goals for today? What are the 10 things I would love to get done today? If today goes perfectly when I lay my head on a pillow What will I have gotten done today and and have those things up? Because all that really matters is what you choose to do next right. y- Your life is not wa- you know that you someday wanted to walk on the moon your life is not the the long-distance goal you gave yourself your life is absolutely just the sum total of all the little things that you chose to do next. But if you don't have goals in mind, then how do you choose what to do next Mm. is kind of my fundamental question. And by having specific uh, goals and measures and ideas of what you're trying to get done, whether it's today, this week, this year, or this life, I think it helps you then make more informed choices of what to do next. What should I eat? Who cares? if I don't care what happens to my body or what, what I need to get ready for who cares. Sure. I'll just eat whatever. But, but if you actually have some sort of objective in mind, then, then, okay, well, this is what I should eat, or this is the exercise I should do. This is the book I should read. This is the course I should take. This is how I should communicate with my family and my friends. You know, what are your goals and your objectives? And then be willing to work hard for the things that are important to you, you know, recognize that, um, to actually accomplish something worthwhile if it takes no work it's very unlikely to be worthwhile it'll just be a random taste in your mouth but the the pursuit of something complex and the requirement for self-change and then hard work to get it to me that makes the the uh, eventual result all the more meaningful and and all the more satisfactory and i i fully accept that i'm not going to walk on the moon but by giving myself that goal, it has allowed me to do a lot of those things that you listed in, in the slightly embarrassing introduction. Of, <laughs> of you know Because all of those were what I viewed as, as things to do next in order to maybe someday have somebody trust me to fly a spaceship the quarter million miles all the way to the moon. And they still might, who knows. But it, it's also led to an, an immensely satisfying life. Having those long-term goals and then constantly be deliberately choosing what I want to do next with myself in order to try and set myself up that maybe I can achieve some of those things I'm dreaming of.
1: I think that's a great point, and thank you for that. I, we could end right there, and this would be amazing and enough. But you said something there that I didn't catch in the book. So the, the actual vision or long-term goal was to walk on the moon, and you actually haven't done that, but look at all the amazing other things you've accomplished with that as a long-term goal. And yet it is satisfying, and uh, even though it's different than what you – slightly different than you imagined. I think that's a really good point for people who get frustrated over I had this long-term goal, and it didn't exactly happen how I planned it. But, wow, look at all these rich and amazing things that did happen. Is, is that yeah, a fair summary? Rick,
0: it, it is. And also, let's let's a uh, uh, simple example. Let's say your goal is to win, I don't know, a gold medal in the marathon at the Olympics. Okay. That's my goal. The, the odds are terrible that you'll do that. It only happens once every four years. only one person of your sex wins. You know there's seven and a half billion people. Your odds of that day being the person who could manage to put it all together, win that race are lousy. So even though, imagine, even if you were the person to win that medal, if yeah. somehow the the lottery rolled your way and you had the right body and, and you'd done all the right training, I bet still it would be nothing like you expected it to be. And it wouldn't be the answer to all your problems. And right. suddenly everything wouldn't be honey and roses from then on in your life. It would just be a thing that happened. And, and the rest of your life is going to be determined by how you decided to incorporate that event in your life. So even what may seem like the most magnificent, honorable, unattainable, challenging goal in your life, you can't let that be the measure of success, nor the definition of happiness for yourself. Mm, I think by having that goal, then it'll allow you to say, okay, I need to go running. I need to watch what I'm eating. I need to understand uh, running shoes and exercise equipment. And I need to understand all of the physics involved in being a successful runner. And there, There's a million ways yeah. to get ready to do well in, in a marathon. And, and each of them incrementally may help you get better and better at it. But it's going to be the process of self-betterment and, the, and learning all of those things and meeting all the other runners and, and getting ready for it and, and the self-discipline. That's actually going to be your life, not that momentary fraction of a second when the tape breaks across your chest or not. So don't wait until you cross the finish line to celebrate the magnificence of your own life. Wow. It's all of the stuff that leads up to it that really matters. And so when you ask, you know, now that I'm retired as an astronaut, yeah. you know, what do I do? Do I find any satisfaction? The, the breaking of the tape across my chest of flying in space three times, that was great and, and a real peak moment. But but not the only peak moments and by no means the only time that I've enjoyed what I'm doing. And and some people say, oh, gosh, your life, life must be gray and dismal and <laughs> after having done, done something so magnificent. But I was an astronaut for 21 years. I was only in space for six months. So for 20 and a half years, I was working on Earth and, and every day since. So, so it wasn't the space. And I loved every second of it. It wasn't right. just space flight that I loved. It was everything that goes along with it, the mental challenge of it, the necessity for self-betterment, the requirement to try and just keep up with the, the pace of life that I'd set for myself and was demanded by my peers of the group that I ended up in sort of like being one of those runners, uh, you know, try, trying to keep up with these people who have also devoted their life to something complex that's important to them. And, and that doesn't stop when you win your first heat or, or you, some race or, or some big race, it doesn't suddenly end. Your retirement is just your next phase Of how it is you're going to continuously improve and and it you know it we somehow gets confused retirement i think with stopping but to (laughs) me it's just it's just you're setting aside what you've been doing and starting doing something else uh you know i retired as being a toddler and i retired as being in grade two and i retired as being a teenager, there's been many moments in my life when I have retired some pattern and behavior of my life in favor of the next one. And that's just where I am now. I, I, you know, you could take the the dad metaphor of just saying it's a new set of tires, but, but it's to me, there's some reality in that. I think it's necessary to constantly be challenging yourself, looking at other goals and, and figuring out how you can then, Uh, make the most of every one of the steps along the way and love what's happening as as it's going on.
1: Well, to use your music metaphor, it's the Bruce Springsteen glory days. How do you not make that one athletic event or one career moment or one walk in space being the end versus, I love your counsel and coaching there, celebrate all the life victories and all along the way, not just crossing the tape, And uh, like you say, make other goals rather than just, you know, I walked on the moon or I I was in space and therefore, you know, everything after that is great. Great, great insight.
0: Maybe one other other thing I want to mention, Rick, and that is um, we live, at least in Western society, I think maybe in in some of the the more peaceful religions of the world, they've mastered this thought. But we are complete idiots about it in North American society. And it's this dichotomy. We wait for external validation all the time. We, we, you know, someone else tells you that you are now legal to drive a car. You have to go get your driver's test. You get a medal for your sports team. You get a grade on your exam. Um, We we are driven by external performance measures all the time. And, And then you can sort of roll that back in on yourself and say, well, I haven't succeeded until someone else tells me I've succeeded. But the flip side of that coin, unfortunately, is, and it's something I learned a long time ago, is that nobody really cares or understands what you're doing. Hmm. You know, it, it sounds brutal. Your mom tries to, you know, she does her best, but she's probably got a lot of other stuff on the go also. Nobody actually, truly, really cares or understands what's going on in your life. That's up to you. So how do you reconcile those two things that nobody really cares or understands what I'm up to except me yet I'm waiting for those other people to tell me when I'm a success. It's the opposite of Zen or or tranquility because you're never going to be able to reconcile the two because you know, in your heart of hearts when you've had a great day and yet there's not one trumpet place and you don't get one ribbon and yet this was a great day in your life. And so, what I try to do is lower my personal bar of victory to be okay. as low as I can possibly make it because I want to feel like I'm victorious all the time. I don't want to have to wait until some regulatory body that really doesn't care about me at all somehow manages to say, yep, uh, he's valid or not. And that's nice when that happens. And it's sort of a reaffirmation that your own value system is correct, but but don't wait for that to happen. Take joy and pride in what you're doing, in your own sets of victories. And, and don't wait till 10 years from now to allow yourself, when someone says, yep, you've graduated, to suddenly feel good about yourself. Notice that, that you've learned things because you've been continuously improving. You're a, a different person when you went to bed than you were when you woke up. And, and so celebrate it. It doesn't yeah. have to be crazy, but just have that personal, quiet smile of, of satisfaction, of having improved yourself, and unanswerable to anybody else, and try and accept the serenity of that. Mm. And, and then if someone else wants to tell you that's great too, that's fine. But, but don't count on them because they will, even, even if after 10 years they tell you you're the best in the world, uh, it won't be able to counterbalance the reality of what your life was to get there. So don't wow. wait till they tell you. Tell yourself.
1: What a, yeah, you're right. Those Eastern religions, Eastern thoughts. uh, There's some great, even Canadian writers on that. Eckhart totally, power of now. But I love the dichotomy you're talking about because, you know, some people don't set long term goals for that very reason that I won't be able to enjoy the now or the, you know, I'll be too focused on, you know, somebody's validation that I achieved this big long term goal. But you're talking about that balance between still have these things you're striving for, but have joy and pride in every day and don't wait, you know, for other people to tell you you're great or you had a victory. And and that is a difficult balance. And I, I picked that up in your book as well, Crystal. So thanks for that example of, or modeling both of those things in your lives or trying to anyhow. Appreciate that. The other thing, I know we're going to run out of time here. We haven't even got to the planning and things that I want to talk to you about, but da- daily habits. What What do you think? What are one or two things you'd share with the listeners that Really contributed to your uh, overall success as a husband, father, astronaut, test pilot, etc. Uh,
0: just a few things: um, uh, ha- have a pattern to your life, have goals, have things you want to accomplish on an hourly and a daily basis, um, and, and and keep them, you know, internal and external. Think about the needs of the people around you and your own needs, uh, your obligations, but also your obligations to yourself, and and. Keep them in mind and, and try and be accomplishing as many of them as possible. And when you're doing something, try and get that thing done. If you can try and, you know, uh, don't scan 40 emails and don't answer one of them or, or you know, that's a that's a, a figurative kind of idea. Yeah. But take that thing that's in front of you. And and if you possibly can get that thing done. And, and it's sort of a little bit like surfing, you know, that wonderful feeling. When when you catch a wave, finally get away. And, you know you're you're sort of paddling around, <laughs> and whether you're a body surfer or actually can stand up or kneel on a board, but there's that wonderful feeling when you've just been sort of moving your hands and and kicking your feet a little bit, but suddenly there's this momentum that occurs, and it's it's the direct result of of the, the moving of your hands and feet and the weight, but also the environment that you got yourself into. But if you're not there and you're not noticing the wave, then you're never going to catch one. So treat each day like that. There's a wave to get on every single day, but you have to uh, give yourself the goal of doing it. And then with every little motion forward, you're, you're building up the momentum to be able to look around and go, Hey, this, this day's moving along. Great. I got got, got some stuff going on. And if it isn't, then step off that wave, reorient, figure out, okay, well, what am I actually going to get done today? And, and don't, don't negate yourself, you know, have those, those, um, uh, daily habits that allow you to accomplish things that you want to get done on a daily basis. One other thing, and that is, you can get so wrapped up in your own work that, uh, you forget yourself or more importantly, you forget your family. And, Something I, I'm, I wasn't always successful at, but I tried to do as well as I could as often as I could. And that is when you're driving to work in the morning or, or riding the bus or whatever, think about what you want to get done at work today, but do the opposite on the way home. Mm-hmm. And that is, yes. what do I want to do at home tonight? What do I want to get done? How could I do a better job of this? What, you know, how can I be, be true to my spouse and my kids tonight? Think, think that you have equal weight responsibilities, uh, uh, in both places as far as setting setting your objectives. Continuous improvement doesn't just mean yourself. You know, it's, it's the environment that you live in as well and the lives of the people around you. So I, I try and keep those daily habits. Um, break the pattern, give yourself a break, take a little nap, get some exercise, but also be kind to yourself. Just because you didn't get everything done you wanted or you didn't get the, the thing done that was important to you, the beauty of living on a rotating world is that you get one sunrise Per day and it gives you another whole chance to start that list over again so accept the, the, the patience of uh, of uh, a new dawn each time as it comes because with it comes the opportunity to, to start the process over again
1: well wow, thank you for the insights on being in, as intentional with your family as you are at work I think that's a great insight and, and also to be kind to self uh, thank you for sharing that philosophy with us uh, I just want to move on. One other thought I've had while reading your book is, is, you know, we all know the lesson of you have to work hard to be successful in life. And there was lots of, you know, you talked about it being a test pilot and how hard you had to work out that way, but also evidence of you having to work smart too. There's just the complexity of what you were trying to accomplish. You had to do both. And I think that is a key success factor for life and business today so many of these executives and managers are too busy to do everything right. And so this idea of work hard and work smart to be successful. Do you have any thoughts or insights or examples on that?
0: Sure. Let's take the the example you just mentioned of being a fighter pilot and a test pilot. In order for me to successfully test a complicated airplane like an F-18, I need to really understand the airplane itself. I need to know aerodynamics. I need to know weather. I need to know flight controls, flight control theory. I have to understand what we're trying to fix in this airplane, why the test is going on. So I have to really know what I'm doing, work hard to know what I'm doing. But there is a thousand other things that have to happen that I cannot mm-hmm. possibly have, have responsibility or expertise in. Someone has to get that airplane ready. Someone had to build that airplane. Someone had to do the metallurgy to make the metal that's in their airplane. Someone wrote the the software for it, built the electronics for it. And then on the day I'm going to fly it, I'm counting on the meteorologists who are looking at the weather for the day, the people that maintain the runway, the the air traffic control people I'm talking to. I'm counting on thousands of unseen people absolutely to do their role so that I can specialize and focus to do my role. And I, I apply that metaphor... To everything. If there's a job that I'm not good at or that doesn't suit me or that someone else can do better than I can, I want to give all of that work to them. Yep. You know, like a, a more mundane example. I can do taxes. I can write. To, I've done taxes for years. I can turn my income into legal documents so that I pay my taxes and I'm a good citizen of my country, but I'm not, I'm not uh, really good at it and I don't like it. And I don't think it's useful um, uh, spending of my own time. What I would much rather do is earn money doing things that I love to do or that I'm good at or that contribute to society and then find someone who loves doing taxes, who loves maintaining the airplane, who loves being an air traffic controller and let them get super good at their job and then trade. It's why money was invented, for for barter of expertise and for barter of of what people want to do with their time. And so I think when you're talking working hard and working smart, the temptation to just grab the work away from somebody else and say, I can do it better than that, needs to be tempered with the recognition that that you only have a limited amount of energy and time. And you need to really focus on the things, not only that you're best at, but that give you the greatest sense of satisfaction and the greatest impact in the area where you want to have impact. And try and give away and delegate everything else that you possibly can. Don't, and everybody else needs work also. And and they need to do the things that need doing. So look at that pie chart of your own time and make sure that the biggest color piece is the thing that you want to be doing if you could possibly do it. And it won't always work and you have obligations and life can overwhelm you, but at least start working on that pie so that the, the part of it that you want to be doing is a bigger and bigger piece uh, as often as you can manage it, especially through uh, the delegation and the sharing of work, uh, especially for the areas where where you're the least productive.
1: Yeah, well said, that's exactly it. Working smart, working hard, best use of energy management, allowing you to focus on what you're very best at. Okay, uh, Chris, if with permission, I'll jump to the professional side because there's a number of things I want to kind of talk through. And, and uh, as you know, we work on a lot of big projects that uh, are asking uh, people to plan and contingency plan to get safety and operational excellence. So I want to ask your advice on the few of the issues that we come about. Now, one of them is more at a general level, and that is, you know, people at all levels of the organization, frontline to the C-suite, can we do both safe and efficient operations? There's still an argument or a discussion going on that, you know, one sacrifices the other. And, of course, we know that our ideal is we're trying to do both. What, what advice or examples would you have on, on trying to do both excellent with excellent safety and efficiency?
0: What, what you're often talking about here, Rick, is how much time do you have available? And maybe often when I'm trying to look at a problem, the way I simplify it, to myself is to exaggerate it so in this case let's say your operation is that the house just caught on fire um there's an enormous urgency and a very clear purpose to what has to happen and you will be willing to sacrifice safety in order to be efficient you know you have to get this stuff done right now now you have to maybe run through a place you would never run through you know, something that's on fire, or dodging a burning beam, or, or, you know, a room full of smoke, or something, because that's the only way you're going to be efficient enough to achieve your objective of getting clear of the fire, or, or uh, getting your loved ones clear of the fire. So um, often, when we're talking about the trade-off between safe and efficient operations, what we're really talking about is what is your level of urgency, okay. and we often act like the building's always on fire. <laughs> And that's, to me, that's where the real key is, is the building is very seldom actually on fire. And what you can do instead is recognize, okay, we've got a few hours or a few days or a few weeks till the building catches fire. So let's do everything we possibly can now, both from a personal competence, but also a professional and organizational competence level so that when the building does catch fire, as it inevitably will, we can then be safe. And also, that will optimize our efficiency. And, and it really, again, rolls back to a, a perpetual dissatisfaction with your level of competence. Often when things are quiet, when the building isn't on fire, we, we forget the, the necessity and the urgency of using that time productively uh, in order to, to be able to maintain overall efficiency. I grew up on a farm, and you often, when, you, when you're just a, a laborer working on a farm, there's nobody there to enforce regulations. Nobody cares if you have gloves or goggles or a hard hat on. It's just you and the equipment, and you're trying to get as much done today planting or harvesting or fixing something as you possibly can. And so what you rely on there is is all of the quiet time, all of the peaceful time where you have gained the competence so that you don't need lowest common denominator level obstructions to what's happening because people aren't ready and competent to do what they need to be doing. If you just took an average person in and have them driving a great big tractor pulling uh, a a wide disc or something, they're going to be an unsafe operation. But if they've used the quiet time to gather skills and to practice and to get better at something, then when it actually happens, you can be very efficient without having to have an over-regulatory safety environment on top because the people don't know what they're supposed to be doing. So to me, the same thing applied when I was commanding a space station. I knew four years from now, I'm going to command a world spaceship, and these are my people. This is my crew of six people, think self-included. So how can we use all of this quiet time here so that when the moment when, when, when the vehicle really starts having significant problems, we aren't just going to be relying on, on lowest common denominator regulation to try and keep us safe, but in fact, we will have done the, the grunt work in advance so that when it happens, we have a, a level of familiarity and competence that then gives us efficiency in a safe manner. And that to me is the real key. As an organization, how can you use all of the quiet time to build personal competence, team competence, and organizational competence, your own mission control, your own, your own space station crew, so that you can come into a new situation with sort of a fearlessness, that you know how to do this thing efficiently. If everything does go wrong, and now you don't know what you're doing, then you need those rules and those regulations in order to protect you and keep you safe. But then you're no longer going to be efficient. And if you're counting on the rules and regulations that keep you safe to make you efficient, you're always going to come out the loser to the person that has done the work up front to get, to get their team uh, as, as ready and, and able and educated and competent as possible. So it's how I approach driving a tractor. It's how I approach fire alarms. And it's how I approach um, commanding spaceships
1: yeah great summary yeah in the in the industries we work and our listeners there's a real attitude chris i'm sure you've seen it of get her done and and uh i'm a good hand if i if i get this thing done quickly and fast and uh so it's sometimes we're fighting against that and sometimes we need to make our quiet time um in some of these there's not planned quiet time to prepare or build competency and so you know, companies like DuPont and other leaders talk about take two or a principle of making quiet time before a big job in order to properly plan, think through, build competence, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think we're fighting against sometimes the natural tendencies of get-her-done to make the quiet time so you can build that competency and, and so you can get both, as, as you're suggesting. So thank you for…
0: It, yeah, in a low-threat, non-technical world, get-her-done – it has worked for us for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. You know, big, big and strong and get her done because it's within your, your um, ability to control the variables, but in an extremely complex technical world or an extremely complex hazard world, uh, the, the instinctive stuff that that is inherent in us won't do it. I mean, if you're flying an F 18, uh, somewhere between Mach one and Mach two, you can't rely on your caveman instincts to get her done. You, you have to have learned an entirely new set of instincts. And the only time you can learn those instincts is in the quiet time and in the preparatory time and, and, and doing it in advance. And so, uh, so yeah, I think uh, that needs to be reflected in the philosophy of how people approach the complexity of a task. The more complex the task, the less you can rely on your gut instinct, your animal instinct, and need to have changed your instinctive reactions.
1: Well said. Thank you. And I want to pick up on that high hazard environment. That's kind of the next issue I wanted to bring up and get your advice and thoughts on. And, and in industry, we're, we're always trying to get our in- incident recordable rate down and and heavy focus. This is my interpretation, but a heavy focus on what I'll call slips, trips and falls, which you know, we don't want any of that. Uh, but it's the little things, the nicks and the cuts and the Um, that aren't life-threatening. And I worry that we're so focused on getting that rate down that we might be missing time and preparatory time to worry about the big things and the things that could seriously cause damage or death and fatality. And and I wonder if you've dealt with that issue or have advice for managers, leaders that are struggling with trying to do both well.
0: Sure. Uh, It's not directly applicable, but maybe it's memorable. And that is, uh, I've done two spacewalks. Extremely high threat, magnificent human experience being outside a spaceship in the mm. uh, un- unending three dimensionality of space, um, surfing through the aurora outside, actually going through the northern lights. It's, it's unbelievably beautiful and exquisitely um, personally gratifying and joyful, but at the same time, very dangerous. There's nothing between you and the, and the little micrometeorites of the universe uh, except a few layers of cloth. And, and one little slip and you, you float off the ship. And, and if you let something go out of your hands, it can have a billion-dollar consequence. Ugh. So very high stakes. And a thing that we constantly remind ourselves of uh, prior to and during a spacewalk is slow down to speed up.
1: Mm.
0: And that is take a moment. Think about what you're about to do. If you just hustle into it, you're going to get yourself boxed into a corner where you're you're going to lose efficiency. You're going to cause irreparable harm. You're going to make missteps. And if you can just remind yourself, okay, what I really want to do here is speed up, so let me just slow down for a second, clearly form in my mind my next three actions or my next four technical things I need to know, get it square, and then move forward competently through those things. And it'll not only decrease the slips and nicks, which are really critical to your, your health outside on a spacewalk, but it will also increase the overall efficiency of, of, of the, the goal, the professional goals, and the technical things you're trying to accomplish during the spacewalk. Just take those few seconds to slow down the speed up, I think, um, and have that as, as a mantra and a mindset. Uh, don't just barrel into something, but, but deliberately think about how you're going to approach it um, it's, it's how I succeeded in my spacewalks, and it's something I remind myself of, no matter what I'm doing.
1: Very good. Slow down and speed up, and yeah, you can't beat a spacewalk analogy. Thank you. Um, After-action <laughs> after action reviews. Um, you know, I know the military and uh, NASA does a lot of this. Uh, industry is also trying to become great at this. You know, really take the time to find root cause so we can learn and, and not do it again or do better next time. And sometimes time gets in our way, egos. Blame game is a big issue in industry today. Uh, Let's fire them, or let's hold them accountable for that mistake, uh, versus learn. And you know I'm not trying to get on either side of that issue, but I'm trying to get on the how do you really get open and honest conversations on real lessons learned. And I know you talk a little bit about this in the book on how you do it with NASA and space and different. Do you have some examples or thoughts on how to do this well?
0: Sure, and that is uh, to look at the event in its whole complete flow. Often, we only look at an event um, up until the completion of the event, and then it's over. You know, you you define what it is you're trying to do. You get your team ready. You give everybody the briefing, and then we execute it, and you you tighten up the last bolt or or close the last valve or, or whatever, cash the last check or whatever it is you're trying to do that day, and it's done. And now the event's over, but it is not over. The, the natural, uh, like bell curve of what happened is what do you do on the other side of finishing the actual event? And that is where you debrief. It's where you take the lessons learned from, Hey, you know what? We did that today, but in fact, we just got away with it. We didn't actually do it. We just got away with it through luck. And, and you have, it's very tempting when you finish, to go, man, I'm tired. We got her done. Yeah, it doesn't matter how it actually happened. You know, you got to break eggs to make an omelet. Let's just go have a beer. and, and," And you learn nothing from it. You sure don't learn anything organizationally from it. The greatest example I know of is how we run mission control, and that is through flight rules. Because we only actually very rarely fly in space historically, but we practice and simulate a tremendous amount. So how do you institutionalize lessons learned, especially when you only execute occasionally? Yeah. How do you make sure that, that the new person coming in doesn't have to make 50 mistakes on their own in order to learn what not to do? Uh, and if you never have a debrief, that's what you're, you're kind of subjecting that person to. They have to make the mistakes themselves. But if you have institutionalized the learning through a set of of operating rules that are constantly being updated, that are constantly being contributed to, and also referred to as sort of the Bible of, of, uh, of resource of how to execute this thing, then you have an ethos within your organization that that doesn't um, allow the same problem to occur over and over again. What What we do in Mission Control is you look and your things are trucking along fine, and the machines behaving itself, and then suddenly, uh, general purpose computer one and three both fail, fail simultaneously. And you're like, wow, what do we do now? And and so what you do is you grab the flight rules and you go to GPC failure, general purpose computer failure, and you look. Okay, in the three hundred times we ran this in simulation, when we had these two, these were the actions that we took, and this is what worked this is what didn't work and this is the recommended procedure to follow as a result of having head after action um, as part of our normal way of life and and we exaggerate it because our stakes are so high we only get to fly in space occasionally if you get it wrong everybody dies and 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 you lose a billion-dollar asset so we have to really exaggerate it but you can do it at a small level you can do it within your own family like hey kids Today, uh, we're going to have a fire drill, okay? I'm going to reach up, and I'm going to push the fire alarm. Ready? Go. (laughs) And nobody does the right thing. So you take your your finger off the fire alarm, and you go, okay, so if the fire alarm goes off, then we need to do this. Now, that's your after action. And then you say, and probably you're going to be asleep, because most of the time you're in this house, if you look at hours per day, it's when you're in bed asleep. So let's now, everybody go to their bed. I know it's daytime. Go to your bed. And I'm going to swing the alarm and I want everybody to do the right thing. Okay. And then we'll, so go now, push the button, everybody comes down and then you have a debrief and you go, so what did you do, Billy? And what did you do, uh, you know, Janie? And, and how did everybody do? And in 10 minutes of quiet time where you plan it, you do a simulated execution and then you debrief it in 10 minutes, you will have changed everybody's reaction to something and and then you can just start building expertise and it's a silly little family example but it applies to everything yep and most of your time is quiet time the fire alarm is not normally going off so the the necessity to not just say ah oh, it'll probably never go off and if it does I'll, I'll probably know what to do then people are going to get burned so so the And if you have a near miss, if it goes off, but there wasn't actually a fire, that's the best thing that could happen ever. So, hey, nobody got hurt. But what did everybody actually do today? What did you do? And and it doesn't have to be all onerous and negative, but Mm. it's, it's, it's it's the down, you know, it's the bump and the snake is the activity. But the curve leading up to the bump is when you get ready. The curve leading after the bump is when you learn and you get ready for the next time. And you need to have all three of them as part of your way of normally doing things. Otherwise, you're just going to be live and don't learn, and it's going to bite you the next time it comes around.
1: Yeah. What's the frequency? I mean, is it is it when you're on mission, is it daily? Is it after an event like a space? Is it after the whole event? What, what kind of frequency do you do to make sure you're institutionalizing these lessons?
0: Oh, we, we debrief every single time. OK, um, when when I when I was doing a day underwater training for spacewalks, we would get there at six in the morning. We, you'd get into the water at nine. So that's three hours of preparation and debrief, or preparation and pre-briefing and refamiliarization and safety procedures. You're in the water for four to six hours and then you come out and there's a two hour debrief at the end okay. of the day. OK, so it, it's a long day. But without that debrief, then everyone would have drawn different conclusions as to how the day went. And when you showed up the next morning, you would have a big disagreement as to even what normal was. No, that's not what I saw yesterday. That's not what worked for me last time. If you don't spend the time collectively institutionalizing what you learn from it, then you've missed the greatest opportunity of having run the training or the simulation. Or even when you do a real spacewalk, we, we come in afterwards and there's a debrief that night. We talk about it. Um, we write a report about it, and then when we come back from the spaceflight, you spend days, in fact, from a, from a long space flight, you spend months debriefing the spaceflight, and it's probably not even for you. It is purely for the next astronauts next that are going to fly so that they can have a better opportunity to succeed than you did when you went outside.
1: Okay. What about culturally? You you know, you talk a little bit in your book about creating the attitude. We have a saying that, you know, even we talked about it on my last podcast with David Webster, that how a leader responds to failure will determine if there's real learnings or not meaning to create that culture or attitude where we need to share the real learnings and nuggets. Um, Do you have, and and I know you talk in your book about having thick skin and being willing to share, even if it makes you not look, you know, as competent as you had hoped any insights on that?
0: Yeah, uh, because I, I'm a, a speaker all around the world, and I consult to businesses all around the planet, I get, oddly enough, to see what is commonly referred to as corporate culture. Mm-hmm. And it was quite a delightful surprise to see just how different it is from company to company. RLG, where you work, as a, a very distinctive and and well-thought-out corporate culture, but some companies, I don't think they even consider that it exists. And, but, but it's plain as day that that uh, the way they're being led from the top, the way that um, that decisions are being taken, the way that the example is being set, it, it's almost like a flavor or a smell in the room mm. that, that you can see within a few minutes. You know, like wow, everybody is scared here. Yeah. Everyone acts scared or. Nobody really cares what's happening next. Or, wow, this group cares about each other. You can see it. And that is almost always a pure reflection of the leadership that they are, that they are under on a daily basis. And so the role of the leader is not just to make good decisions or, or to you know, choose the right path, but it's also so much involved in setting the example of what normal behavior is and what normal expectations are. And, and how we professionally conduct ourselves within this organization. And there's such a wonderful feeling when you come in to a leader who is really truly committed to, to putting together an environment that that optimizes uh, the, the work for everybody that's involved. Not just, you know, <laughs> the, the person with the whip getting the momentary transient best behavior out of somebody, but actually looking to the long-term. So, yeah, I think... Uh, When you're talking about lessons learned, then that reflects back on the leadership. Imagine if you came in and the boss stood up and said, I really screwed up this morning. This is what I did wrong. This, This is the stupid mistake I made. This is the number of people that it impacted. This is why I made it. And these are the lessons that I'm learning from it. And these are the lessons I think that everybody can learn from it and why I think it matters that we all know that I messed up.
1: That That, would open up. That will have as big an
0: impact as as one more mission statement ever would. Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. Well said. And Chris, I know I'm mindful of the time here, but I'm looking, one of my favorite sayings from your book, and you mentioned in a couple of the chapters, sweat the small stuff, but don't let them see you sweat. What did that mean to you in your career?
0: Yeah, it's all about preparation. Uh, Life exists in the minutiae and in the small stuff. I mean, if if you go, I, I play with Bowie's band. And if you go watch Bowie's band play, they they're just cavorting around the stage and they're laughing and they're, you know, they they make magnificent music look effortless. Mm. But they have been studying music for 50 years. And when you get backstage with them, they're practicing. And when you go to the sound check that afternoon, they take the top 20 things that they know from the last debrief didn't work out properly. And they're practicing, they're hammering them over and over again, trying to get the skill right. And they're talking about how are we actually going to do this part? How's it going to work? So that when the moment comes, it looks inevitable. And you think, wow, I wish I was a rock star. How, how great is that? These people are just <laughs> from another planet. They're not. And, and getting to know David Bowie's um, keyboardist, Mike, Mike is such a sweet Thoughtful guys in his early 70s now, supremely talented, but also so disciplined and so musically aware and so concerned about doing the job right. And so absolutely mindful of the small stuff so that when the moment happens, when people have done all of the preparatory work and sweated all the small stuff, now you can look around inside the moment and celebrate it and and, and revel in it because you have done the work up front. And it's the way great music gets conducted. It's the way space flights happen. It's the way good businesses are run. And that is to spend all of the preparatory quiet time that you have uh, right up until the moment that you hit the first chord, getting ready for it. But when that first chord hits, love it. Love what's happening and use what you've learned in order to, uh, to, to, to do it as well as you can while operations are being executed.
1: Mm, thank you for that, and thanks for bringing in the music example as well. And it happened. It's for all careers, isn't it? Not just uh, business or space. Oh,
0: it's it, it, anybody who's successful. Yeah. Uh, they didn't. They didn't get there accidentally. Uh, if they did, it won't last. And and um, and they did it through through a dogged application of hard work and pursuit of something that was important to them.
1: Yep. So let's close it up there, Chris. Any last thoughts or anything you'd like to share before we close up?
0: I think just that because of our creativity, our ability to communicate with each other and our ability to move freely around the world has never been better. Transportation and telecommunications have given us ability to see and exchange thought with other people at an unprecedented rate. And so the speed of invention has never been this higher. I had never been this high. And it's accelerating. It, you know, you'll around and think you're busy, but things are never gonna be this slow again. <laughs> and so I, I think you need to internalize that and recognize that, hey, that stuff I learned in college, that is not gonna be enough to distinguish yeah. myself so that I can just coast on the superiority of my gained skill and knowledge through the rest of my life. I need to be a student for the rest of my life. I have to constantly be be bettering myself just to keep up with the accelerating pace of invention and communication and opportunity. And and recognize you're gonna have to take time in your life to go back to school. There was a time where the pace of invention was slow enough that if you got a master's degree by 24, you've, you've been to the mountaintop and the rest of your life can just be a descent from that mountain. But the the relative heights of the mountains have changed. And so recognize that for you, and especially for your kids, they're going to have to go back to school more than once in their life just to be able to keep up with the onslaught of human invention and and the knowledge that comes with it in order to stay competitive and creative in the world. We have to change some of the social structures that brought us this far in order to keep up with, uh, with the opportunity that they're giving us. There's nothing wrong with it. I think it's actually good and healthy. Uh, Your life doesn't suddenly end when you turn 50 or 60 or 65 or something. Uh, So constantly be challenging yourself, recognizing that that's going to help us to thrive. And and my own personal mantra to allow me to contribute to the quality of life for as many people as possible in a sustainable way. To me, that's the essence of everything.
1: Wow. Chris, so grateful for the hour that you've given us here today. And, Really appreciate the lessons, so many of them embedded in both the personal and professional learnings. I really appreciate the time. And let me close it there and uh, thank our listeners for hanging in for the whole hour. Until next time, this is Rick Hyland with RLG International. And you heard Chris Adfield. Be a student, a CI student for the rest of your life.